Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And hey, it is no longer October, but is this still a topic that we planned on doing in October and never got to? Possibly. We'll, we'll let you guess if that is the case or not. Yeah, and you might be like, I don't know, Joe and Robert. I don't know if I want Halloween content in the you know the early part of November. Shouldn't we be doing Christmas content now? <laughs> no, absolutely not. There will be Christmas content in due time, but it will not be this month. It'll barely be next month. So you're getting more Halloween content, whether you want it or not. Are your Halloween decorations still up, or did you get them down yet? We took them down over the weekend, but the jack-o'-lanterns are still out. They, uh-huh. They've they haven't quite uh, turned to jelly yet, but I'm having to give them the, the tap test every day. If they jiggle, then it's, it's dangerously close, and I have to get them to the backyard and spill them there. I know exactly what you're saying. We, we have uh, squirrels very slowly eating our pumpkins. It's like they take one bite out of them every day. <laughs> it's weird. We have plenty of squirrels around here, but I don't think they, they ever mess with the pumpkins. But uh, it, is, it has been, more, I feel like more people are chronicling the decay and or consumption of their jack-o'-lanterns and pumpkins this year, and it's been nice to watch. I'm curious why just the, like, one bite and run away. Like, it, it can't be that delicious if they don't stay to take a few more bites. Unless it's, um, you know, just gnawing. It's gnawing action. I'm not sure. But, okay, what was this Halloween-related topic that we didn't get to in October and are covering now? It's headlessness. Yeah, which ties in nicely with the idea of jack-o'-lanterns. I mean, they, these these two concepts are are connected in many ways. Uh, yeah, we're going to discuss the idea of of headless entities, mostly in the human imagination, um, but 
it probably makes sense to think about what's lacking in these fantastic creatures and what we tend to take for granted. It's it's we're going to get into just the concept of like well, why do creatures have heads? What is a head even? It's easy to just take that whole idea for granted. Um because I mean the basics I think are pretty obvious and you know we have to stop and and look them in the mirror and realize a head is the top or front part of an organism. The upper or uh, anterior division of the animal body that contains the brain most of the sense organs and the mouth. It is the communication array, as we've, uh, we've described it many times before. It's the matter consumer, and it's also the nerve center of the organism. Now, most of the animals you can probably think of off the top of your head do have heads, but actually a head is not a necessary part of what it means to be an animal. There are animals without heads. So that raises the question of why do certain animals have heads and not others? What causes this difference? Yeah, and we have to realize that heads emerge in organisms over the course of evolutionary time in a process referred to as cephalization during which the mouth, sense organs, and nerve ganglia move toward the front, or what would we would come to think of as the front of the creatures, resulting in head morphology and the emergence of complex brains in arthropods, cephalopod mollusks, and invertebrates. Uh, so these organisms tend to be cephalized or semi-cephalized. Um, and, and would that mean that a creature in fantasy that has lost its head and continues to to move around and, 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 and act and behave is, is decephalized? Well, I think that would be the term. The head is removed, a thing is decephalized, but whether or not a thing can continue to act without its head probably depends on the degree to which it was originally cephalized as a matter of its, its innate anatomy. Hmm. I'll get back to that in a few minutes, actually. So, I, I was thinking about this, and it probably helps to put cephalization within the broader evolutionary history of bilateral animals or bilaterians. These are animals that have a left side and a right side of the body that are roughly symmetrical, that are mirror images of each other. So we are bilaterians. And again, most of the animals you can think of off the top of your head are bilaterians. The symmetry does not have to be exact. Uh, it refers to the overall body plan and how the animal develops in its earliest phases of growth. So even in the case of animals that happen to have evolved wildly asymmetrical features, uh, one example we've talked about on the show before is male fiddler crabs, which have one claw that's much bigger than the other, in some cases half of the crab's body weight. So you know, roughly on the scale of a human with one regular sized hand and then another hand that's four feet in diameter and weighs 80 pounds. Even that animal is a bilaterian because the animal's body plan has bilateral symmetry overall with the exception of the claw. And it's also a question of its evolutionary clade. It is descended from the evolutionary clade of bilateral animals. So bilateral symmetry is not just a feature of an animal body, but a particular branch on the evolutionary tree going back to a common ancestor. As I was saying a minute ago, though most of the animals you can think of are bilateral, not all animals are. There are lots of sea creatures like sponges, jellyfish, hydri, and corals that are animals but are not bilaterians. We don't know for sure when exactly this split took place, when the last common ancestor of all bilaterians split off from the ancestors of other animals, but based on what I've been reading, I think it's probably sometime between 
roughly 550 and 600 million years ago is clearly it predates the uh, the Cambrian explosion because in the the Cambrian era, uh, starting around 550 million years ago, you see a, a, a great diffusion or profusion of different animal body plans that uh, exhibit bilateral symmetry. So clearly their their last common ancestor was before that. There's still debate about exactly what that animal was like, but whatever it, its exact features were, it is mind-boggling to imagine the common ancestor of all of the world's fish, crabs, cats, squid, slugs, barnacles, and worms all in one body. Yeah, you can't just combine all those things in your head and say, like, all right, a little bit of the, the, <laughs> the cat, a little bit of the squid. It's a, it's a different sort of arithmetic in play. But one of the things, apart from bilateral symmetry, that makes bilaterians unique is their degree of cephalization, that they these animals really started to develop heads in ways that non-bilaterian animals did not. Uh, and the authors of a paper I was looking at, they, they define cephalization as, quote, anterior concentration, and remember anterior means front, so front-facing concentration of nervous tissue, sensory organs, and the appearance of dedicated feeding structures surrounding the mouth. Now, one question I was wondering about was, how do you even decide which is the anterior part of, a, of an animal that doesn't already have a head? I think the answer is, it's where the mouth is. Makes sense. Now, to get some more perspective on why and how a head developed in bilaterians, I was reading a few chapters from a book. Uh, it was a book called Creatures of Accident, The Rise of the Animal Kingdom, published by Hill and Wang, 2007, by an author named uh, Wallace Arthur. So the author of this book, Wallace Arthur, uh, is an evolutionary biologist who was a professor at the University of Galway in Ireland. I looked him up, and uh, it seems like his work focused a lot on the interplay between evolution and development and the emergence of animal body plans, which is what we're talking about here. And in a couple of chapters of this book, he has a very nice plain language summary of the likely pressures leading early bilaterians to acquire a head. So one interesting thing to, to think about here is that the early evolution of the animal lineage found different types of symmetries. So the first animals were, were not symmetrical. And there are animals today that are not symmetrical in their bodies, like sponges. Uh, you know, you can't cut them down the middle and get a mirror image in any direction. Then there came animals with radial symmetry, where the body is symmetrically reproduced around an axis in the middle. And a great example here would be a jellyfish. Jellyfish, are, they're not bilaterally symmetrical, but they're radially symmetrical. Finally, there came animals with bilateral symmetry tracing back to a common ancestor that is known in the literature as the ur-bilaterian. So uh, bilaterian with the letters U-R in front of it. U-R meaning like original or first. Uh, and again, we don't know exactly what this animal was like, but Arthur thinks the best guess is that it was somewhat similar to modern flatworms. Uh, this, uh, he acknowledges this is debatable, and I was reading a bit about the modern debate here. It seems like this is still one of the one of the possible pictures of what this creature was like. So Arthur asks a question. If you compare a bilaterally symmetrical flatworm with a radially symmetrical animal like a jellyfish, can we really say that one is more complex than the other? He writes, quote, 
Does a flatworm have more different types of parts than a jellyfish? Well, not really. Yes, it has left and right sides, which a jellyfish does not, but that's about it. Although the flatworm has head and tail ends while the jellyfish does not, the jellyfish has a top side and an underside, the latter having the mouth, which pretty much amount to the same thing. And the jellyfish has tentacles while the flatworm does not. And yet, despite this basic parody, or maybe you might even say that the jellyfish is, seems more complex, we do tend to think of bilaterally symmetrical animals as more complex than animals with radial symmetry. Why do we think of them that way? Well, Arthur says that there could be a good reason for this, and it's that bilateral symmetry led to subsequent steps of increasing complexity. Bilateral symmetry was not itself necessarily more complex, but it became a platform for future complexity to emerge, making the point that some changes in evolution can seem really important to us because they are necessary precursors to other developments, maybe millions of years down the line. And you couldn't always necessarily predict what those future developments would be at the time. Like if we were standing there in the Precambrian era looking at the Orbilatarian, you wouldn't necessarily be able to look at this little flatworm-like creature or whatever it was that it looked like, some kind of little little organism that has left and right sides that roughly mirror each other and, and think, well, yes, th this is going to be big. This will turn into spiders and cats and octopuses. <laughs> but that is exactly what happened. It became this sort of platform for future development. Uh, but to come back to the question, what is it about these early bilaterians that favors the evolution of a head? Well, Arthur argues that it is the peculiarities of Precambrian animal movement. It had to do with how animals move. So he says, you know, jellyfish, uh, this animal with, with radial symmetry, swims around in the open sea, you know, floats in the water column, it kind of pulses to swim where it wants. And then you might have other animals that have radial symmetry, like the sea anemone. Uh, this lives, it's a sessile organism, so it lives most of its life by sticking itself to a surface and staying there, you know, uh, uh, grabbing things from the water. Flatworms, however, creep across the two-dimensional surfaces of solid objects like rocks in the water. So you can imagine uh, what he thinks is likely the form of the Orbilaterian traversing the face of a flat boulder in, in an archaic lagoon. And so he zeroes in on the different ways that these creatures move. For the jellyfish with radial symmetry floating in the water, Arthur says there is little reason to think of any direction as forward or backward. All directions are basically the same. The sessile sea anemone doesn't generally travel around, so travel isn't a big issue for it. But for the flatworm-like urbilitarian, there is a very definite forward and backward regime in, in the way that this animal moves. You can think of the difference between a car and an aerial drone. You know, the, the jellyfish might be more like the aerial drone. It can kind of go in whatever direction. A car has to, like, aim its movement. It crawls, it, it creeps along on a forward path. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Drones versus cars, yeah. Now, note that there's absolutely nothing wrong with moving like a drone, you know, the jellyfish, uh, and there's nothing wrong with these other lineages. Jellyfish can be highly successful without a brain and with limited range of behaviors. They're doing just fine how they are. And th this leads to what Arthur calls an evolutionary cul-de-sac. You know, they're, they're just successful in the way they already are. 
But for the orbilitarian with a, a definite bias for forward movement, there is a lot of reason to differentiate the front of the body from the back. There are reasons this animal needs to change based on the way it moves. Arthur writes, quote, It is more important to be able to detect the features of the area you are moving into than the one you're leaving behind. So it is to be expected that natural selection will favor variants that have more of their nerve net up front. As part of this concentration of perceptive powers at the front of the animal, in the region that will one day merit the term head, there may be rudimentary forward-pointing outgrowths densely populated with sensory nerves primitive antennae. And I was thinking about this, uh, maybe this is getting a little too philosophical about it, but you could argue that the evolution of the head in animals is related to the nature of time. For an organism that specializes in moving in one direction, moving like a car or like a flatworm, moving forward along varied terrain, the gathering of nerve cells and sensory organs in the front reflects the, the fact of reality that it is more important to sense and react to the future where you are headed than to the past where you've just been. The past can't hurt you anymore, but the future can. No, I think that's a, that's a good way of looking at it. It reminds me of some accounts uh, off the top of my head. I can't recall how, how accurate these are held up to be, but there was at least an idea that was put forward in Western writing that certain members of um, native Arctic groups kind of referred linguistically to uh, something in the distance as being tomorrow, like this this um, uh, relationship between where you will be and and you know, how you think about what is ahead of you. Uh, and yeah, I can I can sort of see that reflected in what we're talking about here. Oh, this came up when we were talking about uh, the cultural spatialization of time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, how people represent time in, as, as a type of physical space with a metaphor of the space around them. And I don't remember if that example in particular was thought to be valid, but that there are cultural differences in the spatial metaphors people use to, to describe like the future and the past and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but even today, you know, we can, off, we can easily think about Everything that's coming into us uh, is like our future. You know, it's the, the future of our body in, the, in what we are consuming, the, you know, the future of our thoughts based on the sense data that's entering, uh, entering our, 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 our body and our, our mind and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I can see this, this holding up. Whereas what is it like, I mean, to the limited extent you can even ask this question, what is it like then for the creature that is not forward-loaded that is, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a nowness. It's kind of perhaps uh, something at least distantly comparable to that that state of of calmness and serenity that we aspire to, you know, uh, <laughs> or so many of us aspire to, to try and get out of that that forward headlong, um, uh, you know, sprint into the future. Assume the mind of a jellyfish. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Okay, next ecological consideration, uh, pressure on the creation of a head in the uh, early bilaterians. Uh, Arthur says that forward movement also favors the evolution of a front-facing mouth. If you think about this, this will make sense. It's kind of obvious. Like, if you feed by taking things into an orifice in your body, it's best to be able to aim your body movement to engulf food matter with that orifice. So, like, in the same way that it wouldn't make sense to build a combine harvester with its intake on the side, right? You'd want it mm-hmm. in the front of the vehicle so you can aim it at the thing you're trying to harvest. Essentially an eat the future approach, basically, yeah. <laughs> where we, what we've covered so far. Right. So aiming the mouth orifice at food and making sure food gets inside also requires extra motor control around this region of the body. And this also favors nerve cells being concentrated at the anterior or the front of the bilaterian body. So nerve cells want to gather there not just to sense what is ahead in in your movement schema, but also to control the mouth to eat what is ahead in the movement schema. And you can see this, this direct connection between nerve cell density and eating behavior 
in an example that Arthur cites, which are uh, modern snails and slugs, some of the simpler bilaterian animals extant today. These creatures, he writes, quote, have an arrangement of mouth and nerve cells such that the nerves form a ring around the mouth or the esophagus. And at various points around this ring are expanded groupings of nerve cells called ganglia or mini brains, if you like. So I love that. Of course, what begins as ganglia for control of just like a mouth, you know, the eating orifice could well evolve over millions of years into denser and more complex structures of neurons and eventually could even become a brain. Hmm. And so I, I thought this was fascinating. According to, to Arthur's argument here, so much of the strange and complicated and unpredictable evolutionary potential of the bilaterian body plan arises out of the simple circumstance that these animals, the orobilaterians, had specific limitations on their range of movement, that their world was a world of moving forward. One more thing from this book I wanted to mention before I move on is uh, something that uh, he talks about in the next chapter, which is sort of the idea that cephalization is not a binary. It's not like you are cephalized or not, but a question of degree. Some creatures are strongly cephalized. Others are more weakly cephalized. And to illustrate this, Arthur begins by telling a story about a time he was collecting centipedes from an area along the coast of northeast England. He says he, he collected a, a number of centipedes. He brought them back to the lab for examination, where they seemed to be functioning fine. Uh, some of them had injuries, like they might be missing legs or parts of legs. But he explains that these centipedes have an adaptation where they cover the stumps of their missing appendages with a thick black substance that looks like tar, presumably to seal off the wound and prevent anything uh, that's on the outside from getting in or anything on the inside from getting out. Seems like a solid approach, some sort of weird black centipede sealant. Okay. Yep. Yep. Seal it up. Uh, but then he came across something weird. He writes, quote, to my surprise, I found that one specimen had lost its head and had used that same black tar technique to seal the wound. Strangely, it was moving around in a normal fashion just like all its friends who had retained their heads. It walked in the way centipedes do, usually in a forward direction, but it was also able to retreat backward from threatening stimuli, such as uh, my giving it a tap on its anterior end with a pair of tweezers. Not only did it do so for a considerable period in the lab, hours, but it had probably done so for an even longer one, days in the wild, before I found it, because the wound looked old in as much as you can tell these things. Wow. So he says that this headless centipede eventually died because it probably starved to death. No mouth means it can't eat. But that's amazing. It's hard for us being extremely highly cephalized organisms to imagine that like the first problem to reach the crisis point with a headless animal would be that it starves to death. And the difference here is the level of cephalization in each organism. The centipede and the human are both cephalized. They both have heads, but the human is strongly cephalized and the centipede only weakly. So in humans, control of the body functions is strongly localized in the brain, which is in the head, and the body really can't do anything without the brain. Centipedes, on the other hand, they do have a brain of sorts in the head. There is a cluster of nervous tissue up there, 
but they also have clusters of nerve cells in each body segment that work as a distributed system of many secondary brains throughout the body. Even without the brain in the head, the body segments can keep on living and acting individually. They can make the centipede walk around, react to stimuli, and so forth, but not forever. But to come back to headlessness in nature, uh, I want to emphasize again that not every animal naturally has a head. Uh, jellyfish, for example, there, there's some disagreement to the extent to which you should say they are cephalized, but they really don't have anything you would normally call a head. In fact, jellyfish don't even have brains or hearts or even blood for that matter. Uh, they do have a nervous system, but it is distributed throughout the body tissues without a central, like a major command center, like a, like a, like a bilaterian brain. Yeah, it's fascinating and and maybe a little treacherous, to, right, to to look at some of these organisms and and ask questions like, all right, where's the head? Where's the head at? Uh, because sometimes an animal that seems to be headless um, may just be all head. <laughs> it's another way of sort of spinning it. Uh, this was an argument uh, I was reading about uh, from some researchers at Stanford University and UC Berkeley. Uh, this came out, I believe, just earlier this month in a paper published in Nature. They found that sea stars, once thought of as headless, actually exhibit gene expressions associated with head development all over their bodies. Meanwhile, genes related to torsos and tails were largely absent. So you could, I guess, think of them more as disembodied or never-bodied heads uh, than you would think of them as a body without a head. Another interesting fact about sea stars is that... so. They're thought of as animals with radial symmetry, not bilateral symmetry, but they are actually descended from bilaterians. So these are animals that whose ancestors are part of that group. They did have bilateral symmetry and they evolved to lose it. Mm. The idea of something having a head and a body and then becoming mostly head, uh, I was instantly reminded of a character from Marvel Comics uh, named Modok. <laughs> uh, I included a picture for you here, Joe, if you're not familiar with this this guy. But essentially, I believe he was supposed to have been a human at one point uh, in the comics and I think definitely in the movies. And uh, he has, through, uh, you know, comic book events, become just this enormous head with much smaller arms and legs hanging off of him. You know, there's a sense that, like, even these may go eventually because he doesn't need them. He's, it's all, you know, cerebral power in there. I notice a, a strange body feature here, which is that Modok's legs are not on the underside of his uh, head body, but the, the front of his head body, almost like little tentacles or feeder feeder jaws around the mouth. Yeah, yeah. And you know, this, this being, I guess, the first um, imagined being that we've uh, referenced here uh, is something to keep in mind with all of these is, is the question of like, OK, well, what was literally intended with this character? But also, like, how did the, the, the imaginations behind them, how did the creators behind them uh, sort of channel some of these ideas we've already been discussing, uh, either overtly or just sort of subconsciously? Like, what do we think of when we have a head? What do we think of then when we imagine beings that have lost their head, that have a much larger head than a body and so forth? Like, there's a lot of, uh, you know, overt and then sort of hidden language in there, I think. Yes, in some ways it is kind of hard not to approach everything with a sort of vertebrate anatomical bias where you you know you you are looking for the analogies to the way your body is put together in everything in the world even in even in you know non-living inanimate objects. I mean, you often 
Rob, I'm sure you have this experience. You look at, at some kind of inanimate object and look for the head or the legs or or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And 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 on top of that, like the other wrinkle for humans especially is that in the head we see a centralization of the nervous system on the front and upper part of the creature uh, amid its sense organs and its mouth. Uh, it's the defining feature of both humans and when humans are looking at animals, and certainly animals, uh, it's you know it's become it's come to be thought of as a center of personhood and self. It is the face, you know, it, it, the front part of the head, if you will, um, and of course that that factors into a lot of our our conceptions of not only people, animals, but also just inanimate things. We're always looking for the face. We're mm-hmm. looking for that that front facing. Um, communication array of micro and macro ex- expressions. Um, it, you know, it, it, and we can also couple that with this idea of, of, the, the, of the, the, the head, the face, looking into the future and what happens when these two future gazing um, facial arrays see each other. Then, oh, you have to have all the, com- the, the computation. What does it mean that this person is in my immediate future? Uh, am I going to eat them? <laughs> are we going to communicate on seven level or are we going to turn our eyes away and continue on our own forward courses? Yeah. I mean, for a second there, I was thinking about the salience of faces, why it's, we notice faces everywhere. I mean, we see faces in electrical outlets and we see the, you know, the boxing octopus and the coat hook on the wall. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we, everything is a face. Part of me wanted to interpret that as a result of our highly social brains. You know, we're always looking at other people's faces to try and understand what they're thinking, how they're feeling toward us and all that. That is very important. But then it, it could actually be even deeper than that in an ecological origin because, of course, understanding, like looking for the face of a predatory animal could help you understand, like, am I in the the attentional zone of this yeah. this big looking animal over there? Uh, so it could go even deeper than social factors. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And it goes back to numerous things we've discussed, but most recently talking about what happens when you meet eyes with just a household cat, yeah. you know, uh, and, and how that is, that may be an anxious experience for the cat, because again, it, it doesn't have all these layers of human cognition. It gets down to the the basic uh, interactions that a, a creature like a house cat that is both predator and prey would have when it's locking eyes with another organism. And so on top of all that, um, as we begin to venture into the world of fantastic beings, imagined beings, creatures of mythology, folklore, and and, and much more, um, yeah, it's like to imagine something without a head is, of course, also to imagine something without a face. And you could just, you can easily just, you could focus on the, the, the facial aspect of this, and there's plenty of ways to cut that apart. But then on top of that, this idea of here is a thing that has no head or is separated from its head, um, and knowing like what that would mean for a human being, like you said, uh, survival is not possible, um, uh, even even for a very short period of time. I mean, there 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 are of course uh, studies, and there have long been some fascination about to what degree a human head can survive without its body. Um, the answer still remains not very long at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, to take all of that, these observations and knowledge about the importance of a human head, the role that a head plays in a human's life and personhood, what happens when that is cut away? What happens when you have an imagined being that can live without a head? And what does it mean? You know, when I go back in my history of, of uh, 
taking in stories of headless beings. The, the main one that comes to mind, of course, is it, probably not a big surprise, is the Headless Horseman story, you know, Ichabod Crane and all that, uh, which has been realized in many, uh, uh, you know, Halloween specials on TV and stuff like that mm-hmm. through all the years. And one thing I always remember thinking about the Headless Horseman that made him different than other kind of ghosts and monsters is that the Headless Horseman seemed less like a personal entity and more like a machine or a robot than most other types of monsters and ghosts. Do do you have that same experience? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons that at times, I mean, there's also the effects level of this, uh, but it's one of the the reasons that at times filmmakers have struggled with portraying it. Uh, I think of the Tim Burton film where uh, you had Christopher Walken playing the headless being, and sometimes you see his head, you see his face, because... It helps convey like the intent and the horror of the thing. You take that away. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like a robot. It's like all action, but without cognition, all like physical, certainly still a physical threat, but there is no mind communication will like you take this an entire aspect of, of, of what it is to be, um, an entity in the physical world and then you remove this huge slice of it. Uh, yeah. How do you reason with that? How do you even comprehend it? I guess part of it is that even with a regular ghost, you know, this this imagined entity that doesn't behave by normal biological rules, we still make biological inferences about it. So, like, with a ghost or a monster, you can tell you're in danger if it looks at you. You know, like, it, you are still tracking its gaze to understand what its state of mind and attention is doing. And with a headless beast, you can't do that. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we're going to begin to go through some various ideas that, uh, you know, especially with, with what we've talked about so far, I think this will make for a nice discussion. Um, various examples of, of beings and entities that have, have lost their heads uh, or separated from their heads uh, and so forth. And, and in, in doing so, they often have lost a face, though, as we'll discuss, sometimes the face finds a way. Um, but uh, let's start with roughly with the realm of the divine headless. And I suppose the notion of the divine headless is interesting to think of in light of some of the popular modern religious views that position a monotheistic God as being essentially bodiless. And in this respect, you might well argue that, that uh, well, God is headless then. If God has no body, then God has no head, at least in the literal sense. But of course, it's hard to escape the head in virtually any sort of uh, anthropomorphism, or any number of linguistic uses of the word head. Uh, we, we even have the term Godhead used to sum up different theological concepts, particularly in the uh, uh, Abrahamic and um, uh, religions and also in Hinduism. Though that is a false cognate. Uh, you know, the, the head in Godhead actually has nothing to do with the biological head. I think it mm -hmm. is derived from the term that essentially means like Godhood. It is like the yeah. essence of Godness. Yeah, but then you throw that into a um, into a language system where head means head, yeah. and you can't help but think of it as such, right? Now, another thing to look at is, okay, if your god or goddess of choice goes through different avatars or incarnations, then, well, no matter what their pure form is, they're going to wind up having a head of some sort uh, at some point, at least for a while. Um, I think a fantasy example we might turn to uh, if you think of uh, Sauron from uh, The Lord of the Rings, right? Mm -hmm. He takes on a number of bipedal and headed being uh, forms, but ultimately assumes the physical form of a great disembodied eye, devoid of body and head in the literal sense. Though it is interesting that it's still the eye is at the top of a tower, making it kind of like a head. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess the idea is that during that incarnation, like it has become... He has become all-seeking, all because there is only one thing that it wants. It is not consumption. It is just to find uh, the one ring. It's kind of the opposite of the Headless Horseman issue, where, like, you can't tell where it's looking. All Sauron is is looking at something. Yeah. Now, in, in actual uh, religions, though, gods do sometimes lose their heads. Um, but unlike with human beings, this doesn't spell the end of it because uh, you're, you're dealing with, uh, with you know, again, divine beings and magical powers and so forth. Uh, we've discussed in the past the Hindu god Rahu. Um, this is the uh, entity that is associated with eclipses. Uh, he was once a proud Asura, a demigod of immense power and hunger. 
uh, seeking immortality. Four demigods are, are just a, another realm in the wheel of samsara. Uh, Rahu drinks the divine nectar known as Amrita. Uh, but before he can swallow it all the way, as it's passing down his throat, all-powerful Vishnu decapitates him for the transgression. He wasn't supposed to drink the nectar. Was not supposed to drink it and was stopped in the act of drinking it. Okay. So the power of the nectar in at least some tellings and understandings of the story makes his disembodied head immortal. And so this cleaved and fallen God continually seeks his revenge on the two planetary deities who ratted him out to Vishnu. Uh, However, in a lot of these tellings, his uh, headless body is still in the mix under the new name of Ketu. So both Rahu and Ketu take on the classification of shadow planets in Indian astronomy. Uh, Ketu is indeed sometimes depicted in Hindu iconography as a body without a head. Hmm, interesting. Now, Hinduism also boasts a headless goddess of sorts by the name of uh, Chinamasta. She's depicted as a nude, red-fleshed, self-decapitating tantric goddess. Uh, She's generally depicted standing atop the bodies of a divine couple with a scimitar in one hand and her own head in the other, with three jets of blood uh, spurting out of her neck, which her own severed head plus two attendants uh, like gaze upward and open their mouths and drink like a fountain. So she's understood to have cut her own head off with the with the scimitar. Right, right. Now, I suppose she is still head and body as one, even in separation, or at least that's my understanding. This might differ uh, you know, when one, if one were to, to dive more into the uh, theology of, of, of this particular god and, uh, and what um, these uh, depictions mean, but it's my limited understanding that you still think of them as, as the same goddess, and she's associated with destruction and creation, but also apparently paradoxes, mm. uh, which I think is worth highlighting. Now, another headless divine figure can be found in Chinese mythology, and this is Sing Ten. As Anne Beryl describes in Chinese mythology and introduction, uh, Sing Ten is a failed hero and minor deity. Uh, his plight is described in the Shanghai Jing, the classic of mountains and seas, which we've talked about on the show before. This is a work from between 500 and 200 BCE. Taking into account other variations of his name, uh, Beryl writes that we might very roughly translate his name as punished by heavens or formed by heavens or, and I love this one because it, this one sounds like it could straight up be a, a, a death metal uh, band, is form prematurely dying. Whoa. Uh, you can just imagine that in that nearly illegible script on a festival poster, right? Right, yes, in the Bat-Lord font. Yeah, <laughs> So Beryl points out that the story of Sing Ten kind of stands out for its gruesomeness um, in the in the classic. And this is partially thought to be because many instances of sex and violence were like edited a bit and cleaned up a bit over time in that work. Mm. And for one reason or another, this one was not. Uh, she describes Sing Ten as an Odinic warrior. And we might well think of him as kind of a satanic figure as well, if you know, comparing him to sort of modern uh, you know, Christian and, and certainly Western literature depictions of, of Satan. Um, because we know, for, for what little we know about him is that he winds up in this position of having no head due to his hubris, due to his violent opposition to the supreme god, Huang Di, the Yellow Emperor. Mm. So what's the story? All right, so the story goes that Sing Ten, who's sometimes described as a giant as well, challenges the Yellow Emperor 
on a particular battleground for divine rule. You know, he's like, you shouldn't be ruling everything. I should. Let's let's battle it out. Okay. Now, the Yellow Emperor is victorious in the end, and he beheads his challenger and buries the head on Shenyang Mountain. But Sing Ten is too proud to die. According to one translation, quote, Tin made his nipples serve as eyes and his navel as his mouth, and brandishing his shield and battle axe, he danced. And we might well imagine this dance as a, you know, a proud kind of war dance, a, 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 you know, a, a vain dance, a spiteful dance. Again, he has been defeated. His head has been removed from his, his giant body, and yet he refuses to truly give up. Uh, to, to, to cease his opposition to the Yellow Emperor uh, and continues to fight. Though in time, the body dies as well and the body is buried as well. Now, I included some illustrations of this uh, entity for you to look at here, Joe. Uh, the first of which is an older illustration from the Shanghai Jing, which f- folks can, can look up. Uh, this is found in a lot of places. Very, very simple and kind of comical. But... Um, by doing uh, image searches, especially using the Chinese characters for the entity, you can find a number of really cool, uh, like modern illustrations. I don't know to what extent, like he's been utilized in Chinese, um, you know, comic books and video games and whatnot. But it looks like uh, a lot of folks have uh, done some very unique sketches of him that look very horrifying, very demonic, with like the belly erupting into a big fanged mouth, and indeed uh, the nipples becoming eyes. And, uh, you know, this, the ferocious form, you know, still carrying and brandishing its battle axe. Uh, at least one of these illustrations has a little bit of critter's energy. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe there, uh, there's one thing to keep in mind, like ideas of like what happens when like the head is fused with the body um, or thought to have fused with the body. We'll get back to that in a bit. But yeah, it's like he's, there's also this kind of spirit of, well, you can't behead me again. Like my head is literally my torso now. What are you going to do? Cut my torso off? I can't believe I didn't connect it to this earlier. But I mean, when you were talking about MODOK, I mean, the critters, the Krites really sort of are all head. They're like a head, yeah. an eating head with legs and arms. Yeah. And what does it mean sort of conceptually? Uh, if we are imagining a creature that doesn't have a head with a mouth, but its body is the mouth, where like head and body are fused into one, uh, you know, on some level, does that kind of mess with our, our concepts of head and body? Like one of the concepts we've discussed in the past is how arguably modern humans tend to think of body and head as a uh, horse and rider. You know, we're the head and there's the body. It's doing its thing. Uh, but of course, there's really more of a centaur concept where horse and rider are one, mm-hmm. and uh, and that breaks down in a number of different ways. Yeah. But then, what if we imagine like the horse human is just one entity? You know, like how are we supposed to to take uh, take account of that? Like here is this creature like the critter, um, like Singten, who uh, now has its its belly uh, more or less in its body. Its eyes are in its body. Uh, what does that mean about its volition and its intent? I don't have a good answer on this, but I was just trying to think, how would your vision be different if your eyes were in your nipples? Hmm. I guess they'd be farther apart than human eyes usually are. I don't, I don't know exactly how that would change things. Well, yeah, they would be wider apart. And, and certainly these depictions of like um, Sing Ten, he, you know, he seems to be, have a very broad uh, giant's body. So the nipples are pretty far apart. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to, how to cut that. But in a way, it's like, by having the belly be the mouth, it's like it, it does tend to uh, 
give us this idea that like the hunger is even more all consuming, like the mm -hmm. belly itself is opening up and wishes to eat. There will not be like an esophagus in between the food and the stomach you're just like chomping. It's like the stomach itself has teeth. Yeah. Yeah. I don't imagine there's a lot of tasting. Uh, <laughs> this this critter is not going for the tasting menu. It's going for the buffet. That's right. By the way, if we dip back into Hindu epics for just a second, there is a demon with these basic features that uh, pops up there known as uh, Kabanda. And the story goes that Indra stove this individual's head and thighs in, uh, like stove them into his body with the celestial thunderbolt weapon known as the Vajra. Uh, but then Indra shows mercy and says, well, he's still alive. He should be allowed to eat. So Indra gives him long arms and a belly mouth. And I included one depiction of this creature here for you, Joe. Oh, in this drawing, he's kind of cute. He's like a blue teddy bear. Yeah, yeah. But this one's interesting, too, because it's like the head is not removed. The head is just kind of like apparently like driven down into the body with some like we're it's easy to imagine like some gruesome Mortal Kombat-esque um, uh, battlefield fatality here. And then that is rectified by divine magic to some extent. Now, if we look to the world of Japanese yokai, uh, there, is there is also a creature there that is described as headless, but with nipple eyes and a belly mouth. This is uh, Donatsura, or torso face. According to, uh, I couldn't find out a lot about this one. Uh, I was looking at yokai.com, where Matthew Meyer uh, describes uh, this entity and says that the main connotation here is to shame and some sort of saying in Japanese about lowering the lowering of one's face. Uh, I think the effectiveness of this is likely, you know, something that's lost in translation. Mm, okay. There's another yokai that Meyer describes called uh, Kubakajiri. And this one is also apparently sometimes described as headless. It's a kind of ghoul that consumes the heads of the dead, though plenty of illustrations depict it as having a head. Uh, as being a being with a head that is gnawing on uh, disembodied heads, and this may seem this seems to be maybe connected to the idea of bodies buried without heads coming back as vengeful spirits that seek out corpse heads to eat. Uh, it could also be linked to starvation, according to Meyer. But at this point, obviously, we're already beginning to talk about things that are maybe less divine and maybe a little more diabolical, a little, a little lower down the um, the ladder of power when it comes to uh, supernatural entities. And this is, yeah, so this is where we're going to leave off. But in the next episode, we're going to come back in and we're going to discuss other examples of more outright diabolical headless entities. And we'll also get into the works of antiquity and various descriptions of peoples in distant parts of the world or distant from the, the writers and observers here that were said to have no heads, but of course, to have faces on their bodies. And so we'll, we'll get into that and discuss like where these ideas came from and what they seem to mean. So we'll get into that on Thursday. In the meantime, we'll remind everyone out there that, yeah, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast with uh, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Mondays, we do listener mail. Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Uh, we remind you that uh, if you are using social media currently, um, well, our, our accounts are active again, and you can follow us there. I especially encourage you to check out stbympodcast.com. That's our current Instagram account. Our old Instagram account got locked up, and um, 
Oh, who's the meta guy? What's his name? Zuckerberg? Zuck. Yeah, Mark uh, Zuckerberg. He won't let us back in. Can't get oh, a hold okay. of the guy. So we have this new account, uh, stbympodcast.com. Uh, do us a solid. And if you use Instagram, follow us there. Uh, there's Our social media folks are actually putting out some really cool content there, uh, including a little bit of uh, video here and there related to our Wednesday episodes and to our Weird House Cinema episodes. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.